This episode of The Interchange is made possible by APSA and Timu. So hello and welcome to a special recording of The Interchange. We're attending the World Economic Forum on Africa and we're coming to you from this magnificent Absodome across the road from the CTICC where WEF Africa meetings are taking place. But that's not all that we're switching up today. We also have topics that are in line with WEF's theme of shaping inclusive growth and shared futures in the fourth industrial revolution. And we have very, very intelligent debaters from UCT and Stelis who will be doing their best to argue the pros and cons of today's motion with as much intelligence and sincerity as possible. Okay, now on to today's topic. We're discussing spatial inequality. I think it's almost the perfect topic considering the fact that we are in Cape Town, which is a world-class city, but for various other groups who don't have as much money, apartheid zoning and um, um, low-quality access to services and resources is still a day-to-day reality. So we need a radical change, right? But today's topic is about figuring out what that change could possibly look like. So we're debating the motion in a bit to mend spatial disparities in African cities, this house would incentivize large corporations to establish their headquarters in townships and peri-urban areas. That's APSA taking their big building in the city and putting it right in the middle of Kailicha. What could that mean for the future of not only Kailicha, but the economy in general of this city? So to debate this motion, we have two teams of proposition and opposition. In proposition from UCT, we have Stephen, who studies politics, philosophy, and economics. And we also have Devashni, who's a final year law student, dog lover, self-proclaimed foodie, and a friend-appointed fashion consultant. And then in opposition from Stalinbosch, we have... Giuseppe, who is an aspiring journalist, a social justice activist, and in his spare time enjoys being an Indian-Italian cultural force of nature. And we also have Kolia, who's a student of law, politics, and philosophy, and is passionate about the potential of both law and academia to be used as tools of liberation. Of course, we also have an expert for today's topic. Our expert is Dr. Jibi Chiam who is a senior lecturer in the School of Economics at UCT and an affiliated research fellow at the Center of Development Research at the University of Bonn. Dr. Chiam's research focuses on agri-environmental policy with regard to risk and transaction costs, growth, poverty, and bioeconomy, and of course, the economics of development policy. So uh, welcome to all of you. So glad to have you here. How are you feeling? Good. Good. Good Great. Now, Dr. Jibi, brief thoughts on the topic before we get started with the debate? Thanks for the uh, introduction and the question. I think the topic is very relevant, not only for South Africa, but for the rest of the African continent. And this is uh, because spatial disparity plays a very important role, not only in the way resources are being allocated, but also in terms of production and consumption processes. Because depending on where you live, clearly the transport costs you have to pay to get to your work, the schools your kids access to, the hospitals you can access, they all kind of influence your welfare uh, function, or Mm. if you want your, your welfare at all. And therefore, 
I think it's, it's a very important topic, and I'm glad to see that that topic has actually uh, drawn a lot of interest from the, from the public in South Africa, but also from other parts of the continent. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. And I hope that today's debate is going to not only continue to show us why this topic is an important one that we need to talk about, but also give us tangible solutions that any public policy makers or any world leaders who are listening to this particular podcast today can take on and, and start to think about when they try and transform and change our cities for the better. So the rules before we start the debate, remember that uh, our debaters are representing the view of the side that they are on. So this is not necessarily their personal view. We'll get to hear some of those at the end of the debate. But also we're using the British parliamentary format. We've got two speakers on each side. The first two are prop, the second two are op. In terms of speaking order, prop one is going to speak first and op two is going to speak last. Each speaker has four minutes to deliver their speech. The first minutes and the last minutes are protected, but in between rather, the opposing team can ask points of information. Debaters, are you ready to get the debate started? Cool. Stephen, take it away. Awesome. Thank you very much. So unemployment is not merely a problem in Africa. In many ways, it's the defining economic challenge of the 21st century on the continent. In South Africa, the narrow unemployment rate is nearly 30%. The expanded rate, which includes people that have given up looking for work, is nearly 50%. So what we're going to be arguing on the proposition here is that large corporations not only have a role to play in reducing unemployment, but a responsibility. Before we start, let's just define some of the terms of the motion. So the first is large corporations. So by large corporations, we mean established companies with high revenue, profits, employment, or market capitalization. Some examples might include retailers like Woolworths or Pick and Pay, telecommunications firms like MTN or Vodacom, as well as banks like ABSA or FNB. Uh, By headquarters, what we're referring to here are the administrative or managerial premises of these companies. So in principle, we're willing to extend this motion to include the operational facilities of these companies. One minute is up. Including things like their factories and their distribution centers and their branches, but we can refer only and specifically to headquarters if that's what the motion requires. Lastly, when we're talking about townships or peri-urban areas, we're looking at economically deprived areas that are outside the urban center. So of course, in Cape Town, that might be somewhere like Kyalicha. In Lagos, that would be Bariga and Jamestown and Accra. So what is the problem? The problem is that spatial inequalities, the ones that exist today, deepen economic inequalities. These townships and peri-urban areas that we're referring to are underdeveloped relative to the urban and suburban areas in their cities. As a result of Africa's history in South Africa as a result of apartheid and ongoing political economic challenges, these peri-urban areas suffer from high unemployment, low educational attainment, public health risks, and poor quality housing. For these reasons and more, large corporations are unwilling to establish their headquarters or meaningful operations in these areas. This is for a number of reasons. The first is markets. Poor outer city areas lack employment, and when they lack employment, they lack money. And when they lack money, they lack purchasing power. And that means that these companies are often uninterested in starting up companies in these areas. Another problem is transport costs that we've heard from our expert. In order to find employment, people need to move into the urban center. That often requires very expensive transport. So what we're saying is that we need to incentivize large corporations to move into these areas because they're unwilling to do so at the moment. 
When we say incentivize, we mean that the state should offer large corporations a broad range of concessions conditional on A, the large corporation moving its operations into a peri-urban area, and B, the corporation in question creating a certain number of jobs. So these concessions might include tax cuts, they might include direct subsidies, promises for infrastructure provisions such as the building of transport links or security services, but it might also include preferential access to government tenders. What we're going to argue is that this is a far more effective method of creating jobs than traditional uh, job creation methods. So two direct benefits that we get from employment. So when we incentivize companies to move in this way, a condition of their movement is that they have to create jobs. So that means that we can expect immediate increases in employment in these areas. What this means is that wages are likely to be higher in the short run and also in the long run, as the costs of job search for people in these areas are reduced. What, that, what does that mean? That means an increase in household income. It means more spending on education, on housing, and on healthcare. It means that people can send remittances back to uh, rural areas if that might be something that they need to do. But we also get local market effects. If I own a shop and my neighbor gets a high-paying job, I should be happy because that means that they can buy products from me and I can, I can expand my operations. One concern that the opposing team might have is gentrification. They might say that all of this um, movement to urban areas might increase local prices. But we think that this can be avoided with sensible policies aimed at economic inclusion. For example, we can give formal property rights to informal dwellers so that they can benefit from the increases in the land value of their properties. We can give them rates exemptions which can ensure that people Stephen, can benefit from the inclusion. Stephen, your time is up, unfortunately. Thank you. Thank you for that speech. And we're handing over to opposition speaker Juan Giuseppe. Here, here. Thank you. You can clap, thank you. <laughs> Brilliant. So what we think is that opposition um, fundamentally is that Stephen spends a lot of his time sort of re-establishing a context that we are well aware of as South Africans, particularly as a POC South African, who understands what it feels like to come from areas such as this, right? Who understands what the historical consequences um, of this kind of context look like. What we think this debate boils down to, though, is not simply conceding to awful circumstances and realities that we're well aware of. Rather, what Stephen's burden is, is to prove that there is a link between these companies relocating to these areas. Um, there's a link between that, that mechanism and the kind of benefits that he talks about, such as employment and whatnot, because we think they're inherently overly optimistic, right, for a number of reasons. So let me sort of fix and patch up the, the sort of principled holes that underlie Stephen's case thus far. So firstly, with the historical context that we try to talk about on a, such a superficial level, what's important to take from that? When you look at something like the Land Act um, in the early 20th century and so on, and various restrictions on movement for Africans and particularly black Africans, um, when, when you look at that reality and look at that historical context, what are the implications for that? Firstly, we tell you that companies inherently um, gravitate towards densely populated areas, right? So it makes sense that townships ought to have benefited from that mindset One of companies. One minute is up. Why haven't they? Well, because of that historical context. With that historical context, co um, companies are able to stick with the CBD, stick where wealth resides, and ignore where poverty resides and where their mandate exists. Particularly when the, you look at the link between government and companies and the shared responsibilities that they possess, both as state and as the economy, um, as drivers of the economy, right? What do we mean by that? We think that Stephen is incredibly idealistic in terms of the shirk responsibility that ends up happening, right? Because now the state has a, has a superficial solution to um, inherent intrinsic institutions 
institutional poverty, particularly for people that come from areas like Kailicha, they can say, oh, but now we have Woolworths in Kailicha. Problem solved. Poverty fixed. No, because you still have poor quality education. There's still no guarantee that the kind of wages they receive and job opportunities they receive from Woolworths in Kailicha is going to be an adequate solution um, to the kind of intrinsic institutional systemic issues that we're having a conversation about. If you want to talk about systemic racism and systemic poverty, try and do it on a deeper level, Stephen. Sure, go ahead. Uh, So we don't think that we have to solve all systemic problems. We think that we can solve a few of them. And we think that these big companies often have an interest in developing the areas where their headquarters reside. They want to create pipelines for employment. They want to ensure that they can have Okay, cool. So here's why that mechanism just needs way more work from Stephen, right? Firstly, we tell you, as far as that mechanism is concerned, companies can now exploit poor people in Kailicha because companies are not these, like, super great things that just want to benefit people. They're also profit-driven, right? And if people in Kailicha are willing to work for the bare minimum, companies are going to flourish their sure in terms of exploitation. If you want to help people who are poor systemically in South Africa, don't exploit them further. You cannot use a neo-colonial, neoliberal solution to the effects of a historical of historical colonialism that's principally flawed. So let's get deeper into this. What happens in terms of a realistic mechanism? Firstly, we tell you that you diminish diversity in these areas because small business is flourishing currently in South Africa in areas like Kailicha and other townships, right? Small business is incredibly valuable to the people there. So you um, inhibit diversity. Second, we tell you that the um, market in these townships is not there to satisfy uh, companies like Woolworths. The market is still outside of townships in like the CBD or in like Constantia, right? So now you have less people wanting to come from Constantia to Kailicha so the economy and those companies um, then suffer, which only filters further into the economy and further pushes down people who need companies to feed money and other resources into the economy. So there's a, a, a cyclical sort of issue there. But secondly, we tell you that in terms of efficiency, you need to integrate people into the economy from these areas. It looks like providing cheaper um, a transport for people from Kailicha to work in the CBD. It looks like giving people the kind of um, 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 sort of educational benefits as well that can help them systemically uplift themselves from poverty, right? So we tell you, they and they concede to this, that if the mechanism to incentivize companies is things like tax cuts, they have more money as companies, they can exploit more and further push down those who are poor. If you want to talk about systemic upliftment, if you want to talk about what it looks like to bring people out of Kailich into the CBD, Your you're talking about opposition. Your time is up. Thank, Thank you, you so much, much for that speech. We now hand over to Proposition Speaker 2 to close the proposition case here, here, Devashnik. Thank you, Busi. So I think what the opposition needs to fundamentally understand is two things. Firstly, that our policy doesn't try to solve systematic um, unemployment or systematic like poverty structures. That's not what we're doing, right? Rather, the fundamental benefit and attraction to our policy is that it's a first attempt to the deconstruction of the status quo, and in particular, how big business can further like perpetuate these aims, right? So I think we get three kind of arguments from the opposition. The first is about what our burden is. The second about, I think, they give an uncharitable contextualization to our case. And the third is what they then come up with as they label as alternatives, but are rather just like detriments that they perceive from our policy. So going on to what they think our burden is, right? I think Stephen has given you all the primary benefits of what the burden is. Let me give you some of the secondary benefits, right? And I've already told you why I don't think we have a burden to solve blanketly all systematic um, inequality in South Africa, right? That's just super uncharitable. 
So some secondary kind of benefits that you get, right? First of all, when these big businesses move to these areas, you're going to get a direct increase in the land value, right? That's going to have um, a, a secondary benefit to the people who live in that area because their land is also going to increase in price. Stephen has already told you how we can deal with gentrification, right? Another idea that we get that falls into what the opposition says, but on our side, is that big businesses have lobbying power, right? Yeah. So that means, I'll take you in a moment, so that means that when big businesses are like, actually ESCOM, the electricity is really terrible here, we need faster and better electricity so we can connect to the Wi-Fi, they're going to get better copper cabling and infrastructure so that they can get those things. And obviously, when the government implements that kind of infrastructure, they're not going to implement it only to that factory or only to that headquarters, but to the general surroundings, right? That's the way infrastructure works. So you're going to get better transport links, better roading, better electricity, all those kinds of things benefit holistically the community in which people live in, yes. Your solution to gentrification seems to be that the state will stop it. When the state has refused to stop it in areas like Woodstock and Wilcock, okay, thank you, why Claudia. is that Sorry, I don't have a lot of time. The, right, the problem is, is that all you're fundamentally advocating for is the status quo, and that's already not working. At least ours gives you some kind of marginal benefit, and that's what you have to engage with in your speech, right? So I've given you some direct secondary benefits. Let me also tell you why I think their case is uncharitable and the second aim of what I want to do, right? And why we don't have to like solve systematic inequality. I've given you some general secondary benefits. Let me tell you why I think in terms of social integration, this is going to be really good for South Africa, right? So first of all, I think when you get this kind of migration of like middle class people, um, affluent middle class people going into areas, townships and peri-urban areas that by other necessity they wouldn't, no thank you, they wouldn't normally go to, even just by virtue of that exposure, in particular given the like social structures we live in in South Africa, that's very up. valuable for our society, right? Because I think, firstly, you're going to get some cross-culturalization of class. And secondly, you're going to get a cross-culturalization of race, both of which are important. <laughs> Let me lastly just deal with the three things that they talk about here. They talk about diversity, why it's bad for the business, um, the market of the business, and why it's bad for integration into the economy. Firstly, why it's not going to be bad for diversity. You're increasing diversity, as I said, through like class and race. I've already dealt with that. Secondly, why it's not going to be why it's like ineffective for the market of the business. The headquarters themselves are just the administrative centers. You're not moving necessarily the stores to that areas. So it's going to be ineffective to the markets of those businesses anyway, right? You're not moving like Woolworths from Constantia to Guguletu. You're keeping it in um, Constantia. In fact, you're more likely to move one to Guguletu as a trademark flagship store. Lastly, why you're going to get better integration into the economy is because people will get jobs more likely at those headquarters. We think that's going to be better time. for the People is in the long term. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tavashni. And our last speaker for the debate, closing the uh, the opposition case, but also the entire debate, is Kolia. Here, here. Yes. To start off, for someone who doesn't really understand the economic that much, however, someone who understands the historical context of South Africa, it is important to note that you cannot implement an ahistorical neoliberalism solution to a society that needs one that recognizes the historical implications of the structural inequality that is rife in South Africa and also in the rest of Africa. So the solutions provided thus far under the burden that we don't need to solve the entire systemic inequality of South Africa, but rather that we are trying to ameliorate that step by step. On that burden, firstly, even if we accept that burden, 
the real tangible harms of that motion or policy need to be acknowledged. Secondly, when private companies take over the government's burden, as is done in the housing crisis, what we don't necessarily see is upward mobility and upliftment. Rather, we see rent-seeking, we see exploitation, we see creating markets only until there is enough market One to keep that up. company afloat, rather than Point this kind of dispersed type of structural e equality. So the alternatives in a minute, the alternatives that we give mean that you do have to choose one over the other because once um, government has given over that burden to private companies, as done in the housing situation, that is when government can no longer step in. This is why it is an either-or debate and not one in which we can claim to do a little bit. Sure. Why can social corporate responsibilities of companies and government burdens not coexist? I'm going to be going into the power dynamics between state and business and why specifically in African nations, why even if exploitation of labor and exploitation of market isn't in that, in, is in that contract, when we see especially in multinational companies in African countries such as Coca-Cola Nigeria, even when exploitation wasn't specifically in the contract, because of that unfair leverage that private companies have over state, because of the lack of state centralization and because of that bargaining power, especially when Giuseppe has told you that companies have a lot of bargaining power because it is very inconvenient for them to go to these townships. Once their needs are not being met, they can very easily take their companies out of that area and leave. So state does have this incentive to keep them happy at all costs. That means that individuals suffer because of it. What we propose is not that Woolworths needs to come to Kailicha. Rather, it is a situation where upward mobility takes a human development approach. It is one in which taxis, especially On taxis this. and other transportation, no thank you, become more subsidized, where it is no longer necessary for people to commute 102 hours of their day because public transportation has now been funded, note, by the government, not necessarily companies who have a false and superficial um, social obligation. Secondly, we propose education because... Last Note that it is unlikely that if you're only going to be implementing your managerial aspect into those um, areas, that it's unlikely that people are going to get jobs there. One minute so left. if you're only going to have a flagship, if you're only going to have Woolworths in name, you're going to be hyper-exploiting um, hyper inequality, making people feel even worse about themselves. So what we propose, rather, is the integration of individuals into the CBD, CBD where infrastructure does exist, where you don't need to spend that amount of resources so that people can integrate into, into communities. So while we think that the idea of people moving to Kailicha, especially given the racial volatility of South Africa, people in Constantia, as Giuseppe has noted, are very aggressive towards these individuals and unlikely to move there. What we need is a government-backed approach in which we integrate individuals by means of affordable housing that is government-subsidized, affordable transportation that is government-subsidized, and not one where companies can give this kind of done-enough principle where they claim that it's enough for them to move to townships and that that is a pat-on-the-back type of situation. Thank you so much for that speech. You. Your time is up. Right now, I saw that a lot of the debaters uh, had points that they wanted to ask each other, um, and of, of course, time ran out, so we are going to go back to those points. But before we do that, quickly, Dr. Chibi, what are your thoughts on the 
points that have been made by our debaters, most importantly, this clash between headquarters moving into township and peri-urban communities, therefore forcing um, you know, roads to be fixed and housing to be fixed and water and sanitation to be fixed versus the opposition approach to say government needs to take a more um, a, a human developmental approach where you fix housing, you subsidize transportation, you make it easier for people to integrate into an already established system so they can better thrive in that system. Do you think um, that, uh, you know, this side has more merit than that or that there are merits to both that could, you know, be mixed and blended into something that could be far better and more powerful than what both sides try to argue? Right. Thanks for the question. Clearly, very interesting points have been uh, made here. My job is not to say who is right and who is wrong. Uh, however, there are things they only work in specific areas or policies that only work in specific areas. And there are policies that actually can be generalized. Now, whatever you want to do, there are steps that kind of that should be undertaken for you to achieve your objective. In the end, it's about policy implementation that wants to achieve a specific target. What is the target in this situation? Is the target a reduction of unemployment or the target should be creation of an inclusive society mm. or the target should be empowering people living in the townships or the target should be stimulating and supporting education. Yeah. And therefore it means here there are different channels through which a particular policy action Could can assist. actually uh, allow you to achieve your, your target. Yeah. Now I heard very interesting points. Uh, I'm not saying they can be validated or not because for us I mean if you are an academic you've got to be very careful as long as you don't have enough fact to support your arguments then fact means getting data running models doing your estimations to make sure that the policy you're advocating is the one that is appropriate and the one that can actually allow you to reach your uh, your target and to achieve your objective right i mean having said that doctor what do you think is a good target to set if we are unpacking the issue of moving a company's headquarters into a a um a township right uh what i would say is i would like to have more information about the characteristics of the township yes not only the people who live there but their activities, what do they do, what the education level, what their purchasing power, what their priorities are. Now, once I know the information, I will be able to align a policy objective with those information. Mm. For instance, if we take Kailisha as an example, we know that education is an issue there, yeah. then clearly we have to make sure that whatever policy we're implementing should result in enhancing the quality of education, right? Now, moving headquarters into Kailisha, does it mean that we're moving the production process of a company, mm. right? If we're not moving a production process of the company, that means people won't be hired to work in those companies unless they have the skills that are needed 
to operate mm. in the headquarters. Maybe they have. Maybe we don't, you don't need a lot of uh, lawyers or engineers to work in the headquarters. Maybe there are also other job functionalities mm. that can be used in those headquarters. But that mismatch between what the company needs mm. and what the area supplies or provides... I think that mismatch, that mismatch is actually very, very important. Yeah. And one has to consider that element as well. Sure. But Stephen, you, I mean, had a point that you wanted to ask to call you there at the end. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right now, uh, especially in light of everything that um, Dr. Chibi has said. So what was that question well, or that point? Sure. Uh, yeah. So it wasn't a question. It was more of a point. It was to suggest that the alternative that the opposition and this debate are advocating for is still unfair. Um, improving transport links between peri-urban areas and urban centers is still unjust for the people who live in peri-urban areas because they're still further away from employment opportunities than the wealthy people that live in urban centers. Mm. So it seems as if you're not targeting the people who are most able to transport, uh, transport themselves in that case. Yeah, and the, what's the response to that? Um, I guess this ties into the exact question of what the, the aim is. Because if the aim is employment and solely that, then I agree that to an extent it could be unfair. Yeah. But if you take the aim that we do, which is in an, to an extent employment, but more social integration and tackling that spatial alienation that people feel, then integrating people into the community is the only way to do that and more viable than rather integrating privileged people into these spaces which they are unlikely to want to do. Yeah, I'm going to include the audience with uh, two or three questions but before we do that I want to quickly bring in the question of uh, just you know being honest in our conversation about capital. Um, I think the closest example that I can think of to this debate for me is Marshalltown in Johannesburg where a couple of banks have stayed and not, you know, so moved their HQs to Santon, where a lot of companies moved, um, you know, in the early nine, uh, 90s, early 2000s. And what that's done is it's been able to maintain a semblance of order, good policing and uh, good waste management in those parts of the city that other parts of the city don't get to benefit from. And so if I'm thinking about that and uh, what, you know, the presence of a single big institution being in a space means for waste management, for policing, for roadworks, then I'm, I'm a little bit enticed at this point to think that one or two companies moving their headquarters might actually bring benefits, especially from an infrastructure point of view and, and access to resources and services point of view. But at the same time, I guess what the doctor was talking about with targets is also an important point to think about because am I changing the education in that community? Am I changing the employment in that community? If, if you're thinking about it, if it's an HQ is administrative work and if the people in that community aren't supplying that work anyway, then all I'm doing is just bringing people from a different community into that community work, probably putting a strain on the roads in the first place. That's not to any real and tangible benefits. What do the people in the audience think? So are there any hands right now, people with questions or suggestions or comments or different angle that we can use when we think about transformation? I'll start here at the front. Cool. Um, so this is a question... 
more for opposition really so when we talk about people developing themselves and you know upskilling themselves what that requires is the personal resources of time and energy and if we take your alternative approach of you know moving people more effectively that still requires the same amount of time to get from those um, underdeveloped areas to urban areas you still have to get up incredibly early you're still tired when you do that that means people have limited ability to upskill themselves in their personal time and it's just more difficult for that generally so for that reason i want to know why necessarily you think that's a better approach than um, bringing resources, bringing infrastructure to those areas, um, even if we can see that perhaps this is not the best mechanism? Thank you. Before you respond to that, there's also a question right at the back. Uh, hello, yes. So my question is sort of to every, uh, all debaters, and that is when it comes to uh, this policy potentially um, incentivizing companies to improve public services around them. Should we view that as, although it like may seem as, inher- as an inherently good thing, should we see it as a good thing when sort of the buck is passed from things that the government ought to be supplying its people like already? Is it a good thing when the buck is passed to companies and uh, to like uh, profit-driven uh, bodies? Like, is that an inherently good thing when they are the ones who are supplying what the government ought to? Thank you so much. Do we have a final question before we close this round of hands? There we go. Um, This question is directed to the opposition. So, yes, we get that you want to put um, people from certain underdeveloped areas into more urban ones. But if your goal is integration, I think integration is more than just having people occupy a space. Because currently, we, for example, have upper middle class black people who can't even walk around within their own neighborhoods without being accosted. I think even if these people can get into uh, these richer areas, that isn't going to change much. Do you have any answers to that? Sure. Okay, so opposition, a a lot of questions there for you. But also remember at this point you allowed to sort of uh, express your own views and to, um, you know, add on to points that you think you could respond to from the audience point of view. But just to respond to that, uh, Giuseppe, I think, sure. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so hopefully that doesn't make it clear who won. Um, but anyway, um, so addressing that first question, and I think it'll link into Chariro's question on the third question. Um, so the issue with this is specifically when you look at where the state ought to prioritize its, its time, resources, and energy from a strategic point of view, right? Because every action speci- specifically that the South African state makes needs to be strategically aware given the time-bound issues of yeah. poverty and of the ramifications of poverty. Every, every action that the South African government makes need to be, needs to be the best strategic one. Why I say that is because it address- this directly addresses your question is because then when we talk about things like um, sort of upliftment, and I know we talk about it in sort of very abstract um, um, language right now with our four minutes, but what we mean by that is you need to understand that it's not as simple as moving headquarters or it's not, I agree, not as simple as moving people to those headquarters in the CBD, right? Because you need a, 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 kind, of, um, a, a kind of mix of that. You need, sure, given the historical context that I gave you guys, um, businesses and headquarters should have propped up and industrialization should have propped up in um, townships as well. They're highly densely populated. They've also got um, resources that companies would value. And yet that didn't happen because of apartheid and pre-apartheid colonial legislation and policies. What that means then is firstly, any solution needs to be a long-term structural deconstruction kind Mm. of solution, firstly. So it's not as simple as the things we're talking about. But secondly, it also needs to take into into account um, the fact that if you're going to 
to do something like ask the state to use so many resources to better roads leading to townships and put infrastructure in townships for these headquarters, but also ask the state to lose some of its resources when it incentivizes companies to do something they don't want to do with tax cuts so they have fewer resources now as the state. If you're going to mm. take all of that burden financially and time-wise um, under your, under, um, un, like as the state, the payoff needs to be great. And what we're telling you there is that the payoff isn't what it ought to look like because yeah. headquarters probably aren't going to employ people in townships given the education gap that exists. Yeah. And now with fewer resources, how do we then better education after we've now um, uprooted headquarters and things like that and benefited headqu- um, companies with tax cuts and things like that? How do you have a trade-off between those two things? So what we are essentially getting across is you need the long-term systemic issues like bettering education, like short-term solutions like transport um, in the meantime because these mm. are time-bound issues. Poverty is a time-bound oppressive thing. Like you say, yeah. you're hungry. You get up early. That's something we don't want people to be subjected to any like a second longer. Yeah. And if we understand the time-bound urgency of that, you're going to have to make trade-offs with short-term solutions like transport, but secondly with long-term structural solutions like bettering of education mm. before you do things like just prop up the, the CBD mm. that should have been flourishing in townships like we agree. It, all the criteria is there. It's just the historical context that kind of screwed, screwed um, townships over. Um, so that's sort of the approach we're getting to and I needed more than four minutes to say that. Yeah, so, yeah definitely. Yeah. Cool, yeah. Um, especially with um, Adam's question when it comes to like, the permanent exhaustion that poverty brings, I think it's important to note in the same way that a dual economy and where peripheral communities pop up outside of the CBD, the exhaustion that comes from poverty and living on the outskirts of where opportunities arise is to an extent a natural um, consequence of poverty, but I think more so in South Africa that it is an imposed consequence of poverty. Mm. So there's no real reason why commute should be 102 minutes long. Um, it's because, not because poor people are destined to commute for so long, it is because um, transportation systems have been underdeveloped, mm. have been not naturally, um, do not naturally gravitate towards inefficiency, but rather because of lack of subsidies, because of lack of incentive from government side, that this commute is so short, um, so long, that because education is not available, that it is so exhausting to have to upskill yourself. I think this exhaustion is something that these private companies do capitalize off of because that is when poor people take any opportunity that they can get. That is when people are being told to feel that they should be grateful when Woolworths comes into a township. So I think that while poverty is linked to exhaustion naturally, more so it is something that can be rectified if government just takes that burden upon themselves and does not shirk that yeah. burden to private companies. On that point, I think that's a very interesting point. I don't know about the audience today, but I'm, I'm a little bit swayed at this point uh, by opposition because I'm thinking about a simple thing like uh, the how train in, in, in Johannesburg being pushed further down from you know where it starts in Park Station in Johannesburg into Paraguanath, which is a densely populated area in Soweto, and further down maybe into the south into Ferenaching, because what would that do if people in uh, 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 townships and peri-urban areas could take a 10, 20 minute speed commute into wherever area of the city that they need to get to? But also, quickly, I want us to wrap up and and, and bring in the expert here. How else could we imagine transformation in, in our communities? 
put uh, you know taking into account those short-term and long-term uh, wear-ups that we have to make i'm already thinking to myself that coming from a township myself soweto it's a distinct place from a johannesburg cbd and i don't know if i i wanted to turn into a johannesburg cbd i'm thinking about international cities that have been well designed and how they are separated in in and, and zoned into areas that have different utility and Soweto itself has its own distinct personality, has its own distinct activity that takes up people's time and, uh, and, and involves people in different activities. So could Soweto just be resourced to do what it does as, you know, a township in a way that is more productive, in a way that doesn't force people to have to go into the city to find quality schools or to find quality jobs? Could businesses in that community be propped up in a meaningful way, be tied into supply chains. So are there more purposeful and direct ways that we could imagine that could transform how people live within the context of the personality of that area without trying to change it into a Santon, which it isn't and probably won't ever be? So quickly, in a sentence or two, what do you think could happen? Maybe starting with Stephen, because Kole just spoke, moving all the way through to Kolia, and then could Dr. Juby please close for us with any thoughts that we should take back um, into our communities as we unpack this big discussion? Uh, sure. So, I mean, with spatial design, I think the big problem is housing supply. So reforming housing policy and taxation policy yeah. on land to make it more amenable for people's needs. I think that's the, the Could best make way. sense. Sure. I think something I wanted to say that uh, the second comment that was offered is that as much as we should be concerned that private companies have now to bear the burden potentially of shouldering the government mandate, I think a parallel concern is to why the government mandate seems to be often concentrated around private and corporate concerns. Mm. Um, and so I think I heard on the news that this World Economic Forum was going to bring like um, I might be wrong, but about 19 million rand into the local economy. And as a result, you see things like increased metro services, mm. the streets are very clean. Mm. Um, and why is it then that government resources are concentrated on individual companies or events like this? Sure. Yeah. Um, just yeah, addressing the question at hand, um, I think that it's incredibly harmful to think that areas like Soweto um, and Kailicha and so on that their inherent diversity and vibrant identity as areas like you talk about, mm. um, it's so harmful to think that that's intrinsically reliant and linked to poverty, right? Because Soweto is vibrant regardless of the poverty that it's unfortunately been subjected to, right? The identity, identity that exists there is so inherent to the people regardless of the kind of e economic downtrodden nature of what um, the reality has been for them that to then assert that we need to keep Soweto like unindustrialized or whatever um, for the sake of its identity is harmful. And I, I like that you touch on that because you can have things like better education systems within those townships. You can have things like better startup business in those townships and not lose its vibrant identity, right? Um, and that's the best sort of middle ground solution, I think, as you talk about. And lastly, just to link uh, again with the company incentives, I think at its worst, the government is driven by power-hungry people if it's inefficient and corrupt. At its worst, companies are driven by power-hungry, profit-driven people at its worst. So you have these clashing incentives that have the potential to be harmful. The harms that come from um, bad incentives are debatable, sure. But I think, and this links to what Devashini says, you need a kind of middle ground where the state and private companies are working together at the end of the day, right? Because they are inherently linked things. The economy and politics are inherently linked things. Um, and that is the ideal middle ground where they're not competing and the state isn't having to sort of regulate companies 
um, like to to the bone, basically, um, and they can uh, um, sort of um, collectively benefit um, society. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. So a lot of what I wanted to say about the creation of companies within um, semi-peripheral areas and within um, townships, I think, is most valuable because those companies then take on the identity of what is surrounded by them instead of imposing an identity on this area. I don't have much to say since I think most of what I believe in has been said, but I do think that... Um, especially when we're looking at companies and imposing new policies and going forward, that often government refuses to look back and really understand the root of the issue. So I think that collabing with private companies is important, but I think that when looking at economics, we often separate it from other aspects that are equally important, such as the political identity of an area and the social identity. And I think that sums up of what this debate is about. When we have different targets that overlap but don't address each other, that is when we allow either state to have the upper hand or the private company to have the upper hand, where I think that our targets and our policies should meet each other halfway. Thank you so much. Dr. Chibi, any closing thoughts that uh, we should think about as we close this debate? Right. Uh, I think a lot of interesting points have been highlighted here. Uh, wh when I look at the context of you know this debate and the objective that we want to achieve in South Africa, in Africa, but let's say in the global south, you know, societies that enjoy prosperity, full employment, innovation, good governance systems. These are ingredients of a positive and a good society. And there are combinations that can be made, you know, fixed short-term solution combined with long-term strategies. And usually in development economics and practices, you always have to accommodate trade-offs. What is urgent and what is necessary? What can you compromise now knowing that it's going to overlap with your objective in the longer term. And in a society like South Africa, it's applicable to many African countries, employment is an issue because it has a lot of ramifications. Uh. And any public policy should actually target a reduction of, employment, of uh. unemployment. How to do that? There are channels that can actually be undertaken to reduce unemployment. Now globally, when we look at the world, there are countries that have been very successful in reducing poverty and inequality. Yeah. Let's look at China. Even in Africa, let's look at Rwanda as an example. Mm. You know, there are best practices that can actually be implemented in South Africa to try to reduce inequality and improve uh, employment. Thank you so much for all of those points and thank you for uh, tuning in to episode 4 of season 2 of the Interchange that is coming to you from the World Economic Forum. I think the big takeaway from this debate is that people's access to resources and services shouldn't depend on where they are staying or where they come from. That should just be something that they have access to because they are citizens of the country. And so as we think about how we redesign and reimagine our communities, the big thing is maybe not to try and duplicate a city in a township or rural area, but to think about how do we make sure that people have access 
to every single resource and service, regardless of where they find themselves. Interesting debate, um, but I assure you that the rest of the season is going to be even more interesting. Thank you for tuning in and bye. This was another thought-provoking debate made possible by APSA and Simung, amplifying the voices of young people. The Interchange, seeing Africa through a youthful lens.